Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dial the gate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to episode 54 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Happy Sunday to y'all. One of the exciting things about doing this uh, show is getting a chance to uh, to introduce you to and talk with people who you know really made the, the franchise happen and who were excited to be a part of it. Mika McKinnon is one of those people, and we're going to be bringing her in in just a moment here. But before we bring her on, I do want you to let your friends know about our show. If you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. This is key if you plan on watching live. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days and weeks on gateworld.net. I'm very lucky this episode to have uh, us be joined by Mika McKinnon, science consultant, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am doing well. It's uh, All things considered. Bit... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Within the context of everything. Um, and being a disaster scientist in the midst of everything, I'm doing great. Exactly right. <laughs> we just have new standards for what fine looks like. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the Overton window just kind of has to like slot itself into this new position now. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm alive and alive is good. So Exactly. You exactly. Just relate a very interesting little nugget about something that we're finding out about ourselves in terms of human responses and communication. Could you relay that to everyone else? And that we're, uh, oh, right. So this is, I, I have a, a newborn right now. And so I've been very concerned that they've only seen me and my partner with our masks off and everyone else is either through a screen or masks on. Well, one of the pieces of research that's already coming out is that people are getting better at recognizing each other and reading expressions using just their eyes. So that like what's happening on the upper cheeks and what's happening with the eye squinching and all of that is showing each other expressions. It's although none of us would have planned this situation in order to run experiments. We have been able to do things that otherwise we wouldn't. at the very beginning of the pandemic. I was part of a a global collaboration looking at uh, seismic signals and we were able to see the entire earth just get a little bit, quieter as all the people stopped running around creating artificial seismic noise that interfered with our signals so that's been you know accidentally awesome the in side a effects, terrible sort of way yeah from this thing have just been absolutely wacky in all kinds of ways and you know i mean it, it's i always thought it was a myth that when someone for instance goes blind their hearing becomes more sensitive you know now i'm beginning to wonder you know, especially if, if we lose access to information, we start looking to other places where we can get information and start enhancing those 
sensitivities, I mean, sensors, I suppose, like in terms of what we're taking in right here as opposed to right here, right? Exactly. Like we've, we've spent so much time learning how to decipher each other's expressions and who people are based on their mouths. And now we don't have that. We're learning different styles. It's gotta admit human cognition, not my specialty. I'm much better <laughs> with disasters and with stars and with astronomy and all the rest of it. Uh, but you know, the psychology department and the geology department were literally next door neighbors. Okay, so we did have a lot of, you know, you've got free food. I've got free time. Let's go over there and learn about your science things happening. Lots of, you know, intellectual exchanges based on coffee. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a key part of interdisciplinary research is figuring out who has coffee hours when uh, in filling in those gaps and showing up. Uh, and from that, that's where I'm learning all of my human cognition is the friends I made by stealing their coffee. Absolutely. Hey, you got to do what you can with it. You know, and you know, when, when you're surrounded by people with you know such a varying degree of knowledge like that and such unique specialties in certain areas, you got to be curious on your own, right? And say, okay, you got to tell me a little bit about what you're working on, you know? That's so this, I'm going to bring it back to Stargate for you in the most hilarious way. So once upon a time, I wasn't the Stargate science advisor. A man named Steve Convoy was. Steve Convoy was an actual string theorist. So what had happened was Stargate showed up at UBC and said, we need a string theorist. And Steve went, okay, and showed up. And he literally would write his thesis on the sets of Stargate before he wrote it in his thesis. So like there's original string theory published in Stargate Universe, or Stargate SG-1, pardon me, that scooped his own like actual academic publications. So that's, but then Steve met a pretty girl in a telescope in South America and left. Got but it. in the meantime, he and I both lived at the same graduate residence at UBC, a place called Green College, where the whole idea is you get people from vastly different fields who really like to learn and who really like to talk. So it's like having <laughs> the most social and curious of all your researchers and you put them in one place and say, live together, share your meals, find out what happens. So right. I had spent like two years listening to Steve tell me his onset stories. And I realized Stargate didn't need a string theorist. They needed a creative scientist. So when he left for South America and Stargate came asking like, hey, we need a new string theorist who's available. I went, me, I'm not your string theorist, but I am your scientist. Um, and I showed up on the first day and was very excited and curious, just like everybody at Green College is. Um, and it worked out and they hired me to come back the next day and the next and the next and the next. So that's how we did that transition was, wow. you know, you asked for a string theorist because that's the smartest scientist you could think of. Turns out not exactly what they needed. Well, you know, I'm, I am really glad uh, to have you to on to discuss some of these, uh, these Stargate memories, Mika. And we met at GateCon 2018, I think it was. You were walking through, I was getting my camera set up for something and you you had just found out something i can't remember what it was but you you had just found out something extremely cool about something very esoteric and you were so excited about it and you made me excited about it too and i was like you know what if i ever get my own show i've got to have her on so <laughs> i appreciate you um uh, coming on to share some of of the the excitement and love that you have for uh, this franchise and outer space always Always, always. Well, of course, 
big, huge outer space news right now is the Mars Perseverance rover that just landed. Uh, and I don't know if anybody has seen what the hazard maps look like, but this is the most dangerous and tricky landing they've ever done. So it's Jericho Crater, geologically absolutely fascinating and has the ability to go to a whole bunch of different rock types, which is important because this rover has a baby helicopter on board that's going to go help it go rock collecting. And the extremes to which humans will go through to have rock collections just absolutely delights me. But so we're going to send this little rover running around this giant crater trying to find the very coolest rocks and get help from the helicopter to go to places the rover can't get. Um, but by going to this incredibly interesting place, we're also going to this incredibly dangerous place. But if you look at the right. hazard map of like, green is safe, red is doomed. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's seriously all tangled up together with these little tiny patches of green in this big ocean of red. And you're like, how did, okay. And they did two new things to help with this, this landing. So the, the rover itself is like the same basic body type as the Curiosity rover. And the landing style is the same basic type as the Curiosity rover, which I mean, in and of itself is absolutely bonkers. It's a sky crane, so it has its own personal jetpack right. that launches off and then lowers the rover. And you're like, that sounds really way harder than just landing, but it's actually safer and more stable. Like it sounds bonkers, but it separates like all the mechanics of landing from all the mechanics of being stable on the ground. So if like the rover like had its wheel land on a rock or something. The sky crane can stabilize it instead of the whole thing toppling Correct. over. So yeah. it, it, and it's also way less bonkers than what we do with Spirit and Opportunity, where it's just like wrap it in bubble wrap, throw it at a planet, let it bounce until it stops. <laughs> until it stops, and then we'll figure it out. Yeah, I like it'll be fine. The images, um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, they did two things where they did, first of all, instead of doing distance to the ground, they did how fast are we going for indicating when to start using the different techniques for slowing down. So that's a new cool thing. We didn't have to like successfully guesstimate what the Martian atmosphere would do. The other thing though, is it had real time hazard mapping. So it had hazard cameras pointed at the ground and going, there's a rock over, 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 move. Uh, because the robot has to be able to do it all by itself since we're like seven minutes late Delay. to get away. Like, we can't do anything by the time we find out there's a problem if a robot's alive or dead. Um, so they did the hazard cameras. But, and this is a cinematic bit, and the part that's going to inspire sci-fi, and again, bringing it back to Stargate, mm -hmm. is they had all of those cameras going during the descent and the landing. So we got the hazard camera photo back right away, being like, yo, where are we? Oh, look, cool rock. It's got weird bubbles. Wonder if it's volcanic or sedimentary. Don't know so excited to find out but it also had cameras like the sky crane pointing down at the rover and you might have seen this image if you haven't go look it up you can come back to us or like <laughs> or whatever it is that incredible it's the rover dangling above the surface with all the top wires up and like the umbilical cord wire back to the sky crane that looks like an umbilical cord you're like ah i understand the name yeah image. right and you can see the wheels like just about to touch the ground and little bits of dust getting kicked up and everything. It's phenomenal. But what's really, really exciting is this is one photo of all the ones they did during the descent that they are putting together into a movie that we should expect to see on Monday. And awesome. I am going to absolutely lose my shit. Absolutely. No, it's <laughs> We've so cool. We've never seen this before. And this is also the first time we put microphones on the planet. We're going to hear so, another world. Yeah. 
How and it's cool. all of this is going to come out in the next like couple of days. We're going to start getting it. Unfortunately, people got impatient and made viral fakes this weekend. And I'm like, oh, well, the um, real life is cooler. I, uh, I mean, the Stargate community knows <laughs> no bounds. But I mean, I think we figured out where uh, Destiny made its first um, its first stop. So there we go. <laughs> I appreciate that. See that that works for me. Nobody has labeled that as the first video from this thing. <laughs> you know, we've got the which you can do. There's a, a NASA uh, again. If you haven't experienced it, NASA put together a tool that you can add your photos or whatever onto the particular patch of Martian background as part of the outreach about perseverance. So it's the um, I attended a convention it was either WonderCon or it was in it was in anaheim in 2017 i think it was or 2018 2018 and it was a panel of half sci-fi writers and half scientists and through the entire panel the writers if if i distilled the essence of all they were saying without exception their mood was right now sucks and the sci and and the nasa and JPL people in the group, without exception, at the end of that hour, the end result was, right now is amazing, the stuff that, that's coming out. And this the dichotomy between the two groups uh, up on stage, it was so obvious that they were coming at things from different worlds. And I'm like, you know, I'm really thankful that the people who are actually involved in, in progressing us forward scientifically are the people who are the ones who are so excited about the promise of what discovery and learning and exploration will do for us as a species, you know, and for us to, to grow beyond this world to Mars, to, you know, out into the galaxy and also to understand ourselves better as a result. You know, I found that dichotomy extremely interesting. Can you relate to that? For me, it's always been, every time I sit down with writers, it's always, okay, so what's their story do you want to tell? Great, let me teach you all of the things. And my job is pretty much to be like a one-on-one science tutor of very focused stuff. So let's say they want to do something on a desert world. Great, let's talk about how sand dunes form and change and move and what sort of geology you get and when you get deserts at all in the first place, what sort of ecological systems and how does the temperature fluctuate and all of these tiny tidbits of science, all of which are perfect to like hang a story hook and go, all right, from there, where do you go? And as soon as I know what direction the story is going, go, okay, here's other things, more and more and more. I don't know what pieces they're going to want to use, but there's just so much opportunity to do it. And I mean, it is, Sometimes it's hard to be optimistic. It's I work with disasters. Um, I literally work with people on the worst day of their entire lives. Yeah. And when I'm not doing that, I'm trying to convince people to do things well, things are great. So they never experience the worst day of their entire lives. And nobody wants to do it. Like that's just, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. We have this, a little flaw in human cognition where um, low frequency, high impact events we only think the good ones will happen and never the bad. We will win the lottery, but the big earthquake isn't going to happen in my lifetime. Um, Normalcy bias. It's just, yeah, it's, that's just how we think about things. It's totally worth it to buy a lottery ticket, but I'm not going to have the one in a hundred year storm, even though we've had like 15 of them in the last 10 years. Is it a survival <sighs> uh, mechanism in our brains? I don't know because it's really, it's a really frustrating one if it is, because it's making it really <laughs> difficult to deal with things like, 
taking on temporary, like dealing with changing the resources now to make things better in the future. Right. Um, and it's, it's never too late to make things less bad. Even just right. thinking about disaster preparedness actually makes you more likely to survive. And when we're not in a pandemic, my number one tip for increasing your survival capacity in a disaster is throw parties and invite your neighbors. Don't do that during a pandemic. Don't do that right Please. now, but yeah, otherwise, no, absolutely. No. It's Otherwise, that's how you build your community resilience. And actually, the people who had that sort of neighborliness going on mm -hmm. have been able to do things like mutual aid um, to get through the pandemic or to be able to understand who's got particularly vulnerable community members and kick up the supports for them. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there were people in my building putting up signs being like, hey, I'm available to go grocery shopping for you if you right. have a compromised immune system. Yeah. And we were helping each other out that way. Yeah, share some oxytocin. You know, do some yeah. good things for one another. It's Mika, this far into the pandemic, it's a little bit worn out. Yeah, you know? it's, and it's that's the other thing. But you got to do what you can't. You got to get on Zoom with people. You have to continue to make eye contact and many uh, and <laughs> communicate as many ways as you can. I know a lot of people are just kind of shutting off and shutting down. And it's like it's not good, man. You know, you can still talk to me. I still need to hear your voice. Wow. And this is we really have followed. So there's a lot of research and disasters about what the the psychological and emotional impact of a disaster is where you've got the immediate impact everybody feels terrible but then you start climbing back up and you get this like almost a high from the heroic aspect of the mm -hmm. well my community can pull together and do this mm -hmm. and then you come crashing back down and then you start having things like you have little ups and downs and ups and downs and every time you've got an anniversary or something you have a big crash again so you know anniversaries of lockdown are coming up real fast i know at the same time, anniversaries of big climate events in Australia, they're dealing with the anniversary of the black fire fires right. last year. We were like, wow, that was that was a year ago. You take I stock in things and fires. it's like, how far have I come? How far have I not come? You know, it's yeah. uh, we're learning a lot. Mika, where does your interest in science come from? I've, <laughs> I've so been looking forward to this story. Um, so I come from a family that is very, very, very curious. Um, my mom's an artist, uh, and there's, I think about half of my cousins are scientists now. I'm not quite sure. No. I'd have to track. <laughs> um, but it was always, if you wanted to know something, the answer was, let's figure it out. So we never, we didn't really, um, we never had it because I said so as an answer or, we don't know. It was always, let's try it and figure it out. Yeah. So like all of my childhood photos, like all of my small toddler photos and all that are like poking sticks at tide pools or using a screwdriver on a poor little engine that I'm sure never ran again. Because a three-year-old <laughs> should not be in charge of carrying a, a lawnmower engine. Um, so there was just a lot of experimenting and a lot of encouraging that that curiosity. It wasn't about having an answer it was about asking the questions and then there was so much creativity in it because so many people think of art and science as being totally separate but they're not they're just expressions of creativity um, and different ways of exploring your questions of what is that core curiosity and then implementing it mm. uh, so there was a lot of encouraging and supporting that wow it's and when did you discover stargate <laughs> Oh, I think I watched season one. I don't even, I've got to say that's a little bit fuzzy in my memories at this point. It's, Stargate was on for a really long time. 17 seasons, yeah. like 14 years, man. That's a lot of time. Yeah, 
Yeah. Like, I don't remember the first episode that I watched. Uh, I do remember the first time I was on set freaking out because they brought me into John Shepard's bedroom to give me my instructions for the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I um, but successfully accomplished my objective for the day. Uh, I <laughs> pulled it together enough to know what was going on. Um, I definitely, I got starstruck on Stargate set several times. I remember um, when I was on uh, Brainstorm. So yes. Oh my gosh. Where we had uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye the Science Guy. And them I was fine with. Um, it was a little bit hilarious for me in that my boss on set was clearly excited to have a surprise. And so, like, led me across set, keeping me behind him. And when we walked up to this group standing in a little huddle talking, pulled me, pushed me in front, says, we have a scientist. Go on, do science at them. Um, and that's how I met Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I think we talked about Martian perchlorates. So, like, a little, we just discovered a particular type of, of chemical on Mars that is a possible precursor or maybe biologically associated. One of those like, hey, we found things on Mars that might indicate past life mm -hmm. or at least past possibility of life. I know it happens like every year, but it was one of those. Yeah. Um, so that was fine. But like getting introduced to the director that time, I totally, I, I lost the capacity for speech. And I like, I couldn't say hello back. It was just like, oh. Um, so yeah definitely had some moments on set where i'm like i'm trying to contain my fangirl squealing and do my job <laughs> you know i it, that show brings out the best in us you know and uh stargate really does just uh, encourage people to become their best selves. You know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's like chicken soup for on, on so many grounds. It, it encourages us to, to think and to wonder and to ponder, you know, uh, our, our, our presuppositions. I think that's one of the things that I've always loved about it is, you know, I've always thought or le leaned kind of this way. Now this episode is kind of making me think, hmm, maybe I'm wrong or maybe there's something else to this, you know. And I think that that's what science fiction does when it's at its best. It doesn't beat you over the head and say you're wrong. It beats you. Well, it doesn't beat you over the. If it's doing anything good, it's it's scratching you from the back and saying, "What if?" You know, what if this? Oh, I love the what ifs. It's uh, when I first started trying to talk about and explain what a science consultant does. I had described it as um, a safe space, a safe way to explore the what ifs of science. And I remember Carl Binder being like, "I don't know if I'd ever call it safe." true very true like nobody <laughs> dies like but emotionally you may not come out the same as you did when you first Correct. came in which that was that was an early correction where i was like you right okay yep i'm i'm gonna stop describing it that way it's just nobody dies in real life that's all i get to blow up planets and resurface them and have some stars explode and all of that without anybody actually dying <laughs> in real life which is a bonus when you specialize in disasters um, but not necessarily safe exactly you must have played a lot of sim earth <laughs> oh yeah absolutely <laughs> i am a massive video game junkie i am a huge sci-fi junkie i just 
I love exploring with things. And I love that with science, you're, you're supposed to follow very reproducible steps. Your objective is to uncover what is the truth about reality. Um, and there's a lot in there that's very persnickety. You got to get it exactly perfectly right. Um, or again, people die and that's right. bad thing you for know? everybody involved. Yeah. Um, but what I really love about working as a science consultant and a science advisor is this ability to take things and play with them and go, okay, what if this one thing was different? What are all the consequences of that? And being able to do it on Stargate was phenomenal because I'd be able to do it season after season after season after season and take that one core of an idea and bring it through. So things like um, in Stargate Universe, there's a cryptography episode, Human. Um, yes. That has an actual code that I developed for the episode that you can break in that episode and then use it for spoilers in future episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you did not. I, it was fun. It was super, super fun. Um, and the key for it is actually listed in the episode if you're paying enough attention. Uh, so being able to do little Easter eggs like that was just so much fun. Um it's, yeah, it, and being able to be consistent with it so that you had like the same particular ancient alphabet letter would mean the same thing season after season after season after season in all these different contexts. And it means my notes for it are still huge. I have, I live in eternal optimism that we'll get a reboot and I'll need all my notes again. Continuation. Um, exactly. Continuation. Exactly. Yeah. I would like to continue things and be able to use all of my notes and go, all right, let's do this. Absolutely. Um, particularly because we left on such a tantalizing edge about the cosmic microwave background, which is actually my undergraduate research. It was my first ever research project is like the, the big plot question in that. If that's something that's written somewhere, I would love to read it. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, I did not read that. Uh, yeah. okay. I, I was uh, still learning how to science at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was not very good at the whole, it's not science until you write it down aspect um but uh, hey i did get to build things that went into like high orbit and all that, well, that hey, that's exactly right yay there you go i exactly. you know we you always hear us talk about uh, or hear uh people talking about you're never going to be able to basically humans are never going to be able to leave the solar system because the to 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 break the light barrier is impossible we'll never leave but we can subvert it you know do you think that how let me back up how possible is it do you think to create a device like a gate so in a lot of ways it's an engineering problem as opposed to a science problem um which you know as a scientist i'm full on for that so when we're looking at these really extreme boundary conditions of can you have um not faster than light travel but being able to to connect chunks of space-time together and duck through well we think that black holes already might do that maybe like black holes might have wormholes we're not really quite sure because you know information destruction across the black hole barrier there and everything kind of we clearly don't understand some aspects of the physics of our universe because they break down inside of black holes um so the trick then becomes, can you have a traversable wormhole? Can you have one that is big enough that you can go through it and stable enough that you can go through it? Without well, being broken into bits. Well, so then the physics of, can you have a worm, a traversable wormhole? Well, that physics exists. And Kip Thorne came through and, and wrote it all out. Um, 
and we actually use a particular variation of a specific type of traversable wormhole that we use consistently throughout the entire Stargate series. Uh, just, you know, for the people who really like their equations, you can find and identify what type of traversable wormhole we use. And when I say it's an engineering problem, the problem is, is it requires negative energy density. So in Stargate, we use this with zero point modules, so ZPMs. Um, in real life, well, how do you get negative energy density? Well, to do that, you need to take vacuum and make it colder. Well, how do you take something that has nothing and make it colder? Well, that requires negative energy. How do you get negative energy? Well, you take a vacuum maker. It's like, it turns to a cyclic sort of thing where you're like, okay, engineering problem. Right. <laughs> Like, could right. we harness some of like the, the pair anti pair creation on the edges of black holes and use that? I don't know. If so, does that turn every black hole into like a refueling station? In which case, can we please have a series about having instead of like field geophysicists, which is what I am, I run around on the surface of the earth and like blow things up and fly in helicopters and all that and make the earth tell me its secrets. <laughs> <laughs> it's very evil and fun. Um, it really is like this mix of James Bond villain and MacGyver where you're like, yes, let's just zap the earth with 2,400 volts of electricity. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, Harness the White House with a giant magnet. <laughs> so instead of having a field geophysics, I'd love to have like a show about field astrophysicists who have like their stations on the edges of black holes where they're trying to do all their observations there and can actually like get out and like poke the black hole and be like, hey, what happens when we chuck a star into it? Um, just see this long band of, and then it just kind of slows exactly. to a stop exactly <laughs> and, like, and you get like the pair anti-pair creation that we think happens around black holes uh where half holes in and half dozen and that's how you have like black hole evaporation of the black holes super super tiny um which the, you might have heard about in the news when cern was first uh, the particle accelerator in switzerland CERN yeah the lhc and people were like, hey, what if it has a black hole? And the answer was, well, even if it did, it'd be so tiny that it instantly evaporates. So, eh, who cares? Right, exactly. Well, <laughs> I always assumed, like, you know, if it does, we'll never know. <laughs> so. I mean, particle accelerators are just like this massively hilarious branch of science where effectively you take an alarm clock and you smack it with a sledgehammer and you look at all the pieces that fly out and Watch go, what happens. Ah, I understand the fundamental building blocks of the universe. Thanks, <laughs> man. Absolutely it's it's amazing. And like, you can't actually like pick up the spring or the alarm clock arm. You can only like look at their shadows. Right. And wow. infer information from it. Yes. And then they use us to do eye surgery is just like, what? I mean, University of British Columbia, the big university right in Vancouver, that yeah. it's where Stargate went rating to find their scientists. We have an on-campus particle accelerator that most people don't even know is there. It's like a stealth particle accelerator. Just, you know, hanging out on campus, underground, whatever. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> well, some breakthrough down the line. Where did that come from? Oh, well, you know. <laughs> if only you were paying attention to what's underneath your building, you would know. <laughs> How realistic do you think one-way wormhole travel is? Is that just a story contrivance? Or is, does that does one direct, unidirectional travel have any foundation in science? So that again would come down to the energy issues. So not okay. the, um, you've got the aspect of space time, that time is one directional. And we don't understand like the why, of why is time one directional? Why can't you go the other way? You can go both ways in space and time is just an extra dimension of that. So we can't go backwards in time. 
yeah, like why why is this a one way thing? And that's why anytime you talk about like time machines, it should involve travel through space as well. Mm. So like my favorite fictional time machine contraption, like based on physics, but you need the energy, negative energy density. So you have that hardcore engineering problem is um, doing donuts with it. So that you have to run around backwards in the donut to run around backwards in time and go forwards in it in order to go forwards in time. And the physics works out perfectly. It's effectively you run around in circles around black holes um, with a little bit more engineering details, but the, <laughs> that's the basic premise. Um, so from that idea, like why, if we don't know why time is only one way, then alternately, why is space two ways? So if you're already punching a hole through space time in order to connect two points together, why, like which chunk will dominate? Will it be the time or will it be the space that says you can go both ways or one way? Maybe that's, again, coming down to the engineering aspect of depends where you've got the negative energy density to take this from a hole to being a traversable hole, who's got the batteries? Wow. So possible, plausible. plausible. I can justify it. I can come across with the math and be like, this is how it works. Um, which there are, because we can't test it, there are an infinite number of variations on this. It's when I'm taking on a new show and they want to know, hey, how do we go about doing this? My question is always, how do you want it to work? And I will come up with the math for you to support that. Um, because there's so many choices I, going back to the time travel thing there's another variation of time travel uh where every time machine is also a cloning machine mm-hmm. so you can travel back through time you're just going to have a copy and another copy and another copy and another copy and another copy it's a in the same universe or creating multiple universes same universe oh, okay. you can do it all in the same universe or you can do like a patchwork universe if you want to do that that's a whole different different chunk you can separate them out or put them together and be like it's a photocopy machine for you and your universe while you travel through time who wants to let's do this (laughs) (laughs) which this this is what i mean about this such a fun job to do is every time you get to to create the basic building blocks of how is this particular universe going to work and then being able to stick with that over Mm -hmm. and over and over again makes me so happy well you're consistently you are you are consistent in the if you are consistent in the rules that you set up, and you can uh, reward the audience based on the standards that you have set up, and also encourage them to explore the fundamentals of where this all came from. It's a win win. Oh yeah, it's when I first started doing conventions, I was so scared that it'd be turning into this thing where I'd have somebody coming up to me and being like, "Well." in this episode of this thing is inconsistent and error. And I'd be going, ah, up. we tried our best. We had to make the story work first or whatever. But instead people come up and actually they'd apologize to me for not knowing science. And that always makes me a little bit sad because you don't need a science degree in order to experiment, right? Like every time you bake a cake or a cookie and you change the recipe a little bit, you're running an experiment. That's applied mm-hmm. chemistry. And then the uh, analysis phase is tasting the cookie and deciding whether or not you like it. And if you like it, you repeat the experiment over and over again. If you don't like it, you make a new hypothesis of, ah, I think we should add an extra half teaspoon of vanilla extract, bump the temperature in the oven by five degrees and go a little bit longer. You run a new experiment and then you do your analysis again through eating the cookie. Like literally every single cookbook is actually a lab notebook. So everybody is doing chemistry on that. Yeah, if, we're all scientists. 
like it's it's every time you try and figure out if this then that every time you use your past experience to extrapolate what will happen in the future you're doing science there and it's it's this incredibly powerful tool because through science we have the capacity to create any future we want we can look at the future and go i want that one and then take the actions now to make it happen which i mean with climate change is is getting kind of frustrating because it's we're all sitting here being like look it's, nobody is enjoying these storms right now and the fires and the like the freezing snaps and the giant hurricanes and the droughts and the floods like it's just terrible and the pandemic's also part of having a changing climate let's just not do this let's opt out of this by changing our actions now to get a better future and it's like, it's never too late to make things less bad, but the longer we delay, the fewer options we have and the harder it is. So. Mm. I love your story from Incursion. And I've really been looking forward to having this, this, uh, this story <laughs> as a part of Dial the Gate. The pulsar that <laughs> Destiny falls out of hyperspace into nearby. Please tell us about this story. <laughs> All right. This is so, fascinating. This is like, this is why the Stargate is ahead of its time. All right. So the idea was we needed a, an astrophysical big baddie to kill everybody every 22 minutes. And the original idea was have a pulsar. Well, pulsars are like um, lighthouses of death. Every time they whirl around, they send out high energy particles out one side, um, out their, their axes, and it's like, it just kills everyone in its wake. Great. Fantastic. But normal pulsars go so fast that we're talking milliseconds. And if you slowed it down so much that was the beam was passing by every 22 minutes, it would be about as deadly as holding fridge magnets and doing cartwheels. Yes, it would generate an electromagnetic field. No, nobody would care. Nobody would even notice. Like, even if you were to have like a pacemaker and we're standing directly in the beam, you'd be like, what? Didn't notice. <laughs> Uh, so that's a problem, because your astrophysical big baddie actually has to kill people in order for it to be scary. Um, technicalities don't work. So we went, all right, what if instead we had a pulsar that was starving? So it was just on the verge of having enough mass to be able to generate those, those high-energy beams, um, but not quite. But it had a companion star. It had a big gas giant and it was a binary system. The stars were rotating around each other. And when the, the feeder star was close enough, the pulsar would gobble, snap, munch it all up, get enough mass, start generating the beam, kill, 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 die, 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 all of that. And then that feeder star would go just out of range. The pulsar would use up that mass through generating its beam and go quiescent, go quiet again. And then that star would come back around, it eat, we'd have the big death. Great, excellent. Small problem. Never seen a system like this anywhere in the universe. But there's no reason why there couldn't be one. It could exist, but we just yeah. haven't observed it. Yeah. Exactly. We're like, well, we've seen all sorts of other binary systems. We've seen like black holes and binary systems with pulsars. We've seen neuron stars, neutron stars in orbit around each other. We've had like red giants hanging out with other stuff. Like we've seen all sorts of combinations. Why not? Let's just do it. So we did. The episode aired. A couple years later, <laughs> researchers found a system just like this in real life. And instead of calling it the Stargate system, which seriously, they should have, they called it a Black Widow star. 
Uh, so it's a Black Widow pulsar that is slowly consuming its companion. And instead of being 22 minutes, it's every six minutes. But aside from that, it's our system. It's our baby. We did it in Stargate first. And then the universe was like, oh, yeah, we totally have this. You want to check it out? Sorry, we had it in the back. Let's just pull it forward to, to move properly. <laughs> um, so I was really proud of that because we took this, this little theory, this little idea that we needed for our plot. And it actually showed up in real life. And yeah, it's, it's my pride and joy. I, I think <laughs> in, it's, it's a testament to how sound the science is, you know, and it's a show and you've got to, you've got to make the show work. First and foremost, you got to make the story work, you know, so that we can fall in love with the characters and the situations that they deal with. But when you create something that later, later is, is so um, consistent to what, you know, is plausible that it turns out to be true. I mean, we've only seen ones that do this and we found one that goes six minutes now. I mean, that's just crazy. Blows your mind. I love it. It's The way I always see it is the story is always going to come first. These are shows meant for entertainment. They aren't science documentaries. But the science can exist as a layer of plausibility to support the storyline. That if you have plausible science, that means that your your viewers are given nice, strong foundations so they can come along for the ride and they can save their suspension of disbelief for somewhere where the plot needs it. Then instead of trying to like use up your suspension of disbelief on the gun that never runs out of ammo, you can hold on to it until you have the incredibly improbable coincidental encounter of people talking about vital ideas, right? That you can save it for the parts you actually need it and in the meantime, by having that plausible consistency, you're you're building this strong world where everything has a bit more depth to it, a little bit more grounding to it. And that's what I really, really love about doing science consulting. I, there's so many things I love about it. It's just so much fun. It, it's it's a trip, you know. And you're you're getting to con- you're getting to watch our knowledge unfold and help uh, creative people apply it in ways that it's entertaining. And because, I mean, Stargate was my first show, which meant that the cast and crew of Stargate taught me how to be on set and taught me how to be able to work within this film world because the culture is way different than my science labs or than hanging out at disaster sites or anything like that. So they mentored me and taught me and showed me what does it mean. Um, And I've taken that same culture with me to any other show I work on. One of the things that made Stargate so special is that everybody cast and crew are just as curious and excited as you'd hope they were. So we actually, we had filming get held up once because I was way too busy explaining um, the entire history of the universe (laughs) to Robert Carlyle. (laughs) Yes! Uh, And I got it down, like, it took me a little bit, but I am now, I can now do, like, a 30-second version of, like, the entire history of the The universe. The elevator pitch of the history of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Be like, here's how it works. Um, Or there was a scene with um, David Blue and David Hewitt where um, Eli and McKay were arguing about something that had nothing to do with the plot. I could make it any science argument I wanted. And the actors actually wanted to learn enough about the science to be able to pick which side of the argument they would be on based on their characters. Their characters. And I'm just like, oh, you guys make me so happy. What was that <gasps> argument? Because it was like it was it was not in the forefront of the of the of the scene. 
And I'm trying to remember what the topic was, what they were, what they were debating. We didn't explicitly say, so you had to be able to recognize what the, like it wasn't written in the script. It was all visual. Uh, And it was about the shape of the universe, which also means the beginning and end of the universe. So how is the universe eventually going to end? Um, Which means, will it expand forever or will it come contracting back down? Which is actually a question of um, Einstein's greatest mistake. (laughs) It's, It's a particular character. If you do like, the mathematical formulation of the universe. There's like this constant of integration on the end called lambda. And um, because of the way the math works, you can set it to anything. And Einstein originally set it so the universe never changed, the static universe. And then Hubble started making observations that the universe was expanding and Einstein went, ah, my greatest mistake. And then we spent all this time since then trying to figure out what lambda is. And it's this like in real life, amazing science story where at one point, a telescope was staring into space and kept having this static on it. And the people on the ground thought that it was pigeon poop. So they actually assigned like people to hang out near the telescope, like scrubbing it out and like hold onto brooms and like chase away the pigeons. And they still had this static and they're like, oh, what is this? And they figured out it was the static of the microwave background radiation. And if you look That's at shapes in that, it tells you what lambda is, which turns out then Stargate went down that route of let's look at patterns in the cosmic microwave background radiation. So while it had nothing to do with the plot, it's a little bit of a hint in the teaser that it would have something to do with the plot later on of figuring out what this structure is. Wow. All ties together. Well, of course. And if McKay and, and Eli were given a moment, that's probably something that they would have been discussing if they had a little bit of time. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense. It's this, this amazing question of like, what is, um, how much energy and dark energy and mass and matter are there in the universe? We have this big number and we know what that number is, um, but we can only actually see and observe this tiny little fraction of it, of like all known matter. And then there's dark matter and we're like, oh, we're not quite sure what that is, but we've got some good theories. And then there's normal energy. And then there's dark energy is like 70% of the universe. Of the like, universe, what yeah. Is that? I don't know. It's something. <laughs> Wish we could figure it out. Um, yeah. Something's going on. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, like, I, it's phenomenal to me that, like, the majority of our universe is composed of something that we have no idea what it is. Yeah, exactly. My mother has, uh, uh, she was a housekeeper for years, and she encountered things being thrown around rooms that she she encountered ghosts. And I had never really believed in any of that. Something is happening. There are there are things at work around us that we cannot perceive, and we just don't have the technology to interpret it yet. You know? So, just to do you know, there was a a show that I recorded uh, as an actual scientist instead of a behind the scenes scientist called Phantom Signals uh, that aired this past fall. Uh, I think on the Space Channel in the U.S. Um, and on maybe now in Canada, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it's all about looking at all of those things that are these unexplained signals in the universe. What are all the various theories of it? And what's the science behind some of them? So if you're curious about that, I actually did a whole big long TV Absolutely. It. What's it called again? Phantom Signals. Phantom Signals. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. To go in, in a little bit of the same direction, throw a curveball at you. Do you think we've been visited by extraterrestrial life? Do you think? I think that it is statistically impossible that aliens do not exist. Like they, there must be other life elsewhere in the universe. Um, 
when it comes to visiting our solar system, we're not a particularly interesting solar system. Like there's no particular, in the entire universe, we aren't even like a dusty little town on the side of the road with the big, huge donut that you stop by because, hey. We don't even have the donut? No, no donut? nothing. Um, as far as we can tell, we are like a remarkably boring little solar system. Um, and then inside the solar system, Earth is, is kind of, uh, it's okay. It's, it's not necessarily the most exciting planet inside our solar system. Um, yeah. So I don't know why anyone would make a pit stop here. Like as, when you start talking about the incredible amounts of energy required to get between solar systems, it's you need really, really good motivation. And the hardest thing I'm ever asked to do in any sci-fi series is motivate an intergalactic war, because in terms of resources and energy, there's literally nothing that can motivate that kind of war. It has mm. to be like somebody wants it's the like the equivalent of the oxford club where everybody eats one of every single species and animal and plant on the planet uh like it have to be an intergalactic version of that where they're like we just want to taste one brain from every creature everywhere so guess we're heading to earth to find some like humans right. and puppy dogs and giraffes and whatever else um and then leave again yeah <laughs> like, unless polar bears are a delicacy on an internet like intergalactic scale i just can't really justify it um yeah in stargates or, go ahead yeah i mean we could also do like you look at these incredible lengths we go to go to go rock collecting other planets could do that as well um and there is this very cool feedback mechanism where you think that biology and geology are totally different fields right like rocks versus rocks versus life not a lot of overlap except we do things like we grow a mineral called appetite inside of our teeth which, oddly enough, not actually named for being hungry. It's I was about to ask. Um, it's named for being deceptive. So kind of soothing fitting over there. Um, or that, uh, like, once we got oxygen, we suddenly got all the rust minerals that had never previously existed. Like, there's an actual evolution of the types of minerals that exist because there has been life. And that life has been able to incorporate minerals in ways that have allowed for greater complexity. So it's just actually this total intertwined thing. I mean, there's little extremophile that eats toxic sludge and poops out gold. We're <laughs> like, what? What? Why? How does this Why is exist? This a thing? <laughs> yeah, there are creatures that live seven kilometers underground in mine shafts in like solid rock. And like, oh, okay. If you're happy, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's so, what it does. Like, like we don't really know what biological processes on other planets would result in what sort of rocks. Um, but that like, there could just be an aspect of you'd end up with different geology on different planets and maybe mm. Tanzanite only exists on earth and doesn't elsewhere. I don't know. That's an interesting mm. argument you make about uh, us being kind of like a boring, a boring place because this, this Stargate uh, explanation for, for why like the gold have never come back is there's no Naquita in our solar system to mine. The, the gate yeah, element, it's, the, it's it's not here. The only thing that's here is slaves. And they've got enough of those. So. Just like, yeah, we're done. It's boom. Right. Whatever. Been there, done that. <laughs> Moving on. It's like Mercury, where you're just like, it's just a big rock. It's a little too hot for much to go on. Right. Like, the coolest it's thing about been... Mercury is why is it tectonically active and how did it get such a big core? Like, maybe part of the planet burned off. Maybe it's like a singed, burnt marshmallow of a planet. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> Well, the, the solar system has been around for, what, 4 billion years? So, 
It's just crazy. 4.6 billion years. Australia and Canada have a fight over who has the oldest rocks, so I care about this quite a lot. Uh, it's I will say Canada is winning the argument for oldest rock overall, but Australia is currently winning for oldest surface rock. Uluru? Anywhere near Uluru by any chance? Because like if I was going to look for an ancient starship, I would I would start at Uluru. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like in the middle of nowhere. And like we don't talk about it, but there's just nearby. There's a whole bunch of just rocks vertically sticking out of the surface. There, it's it's, it's bizarre. Very it's special. Bizarre. There's a lot of strange things in the center of Australia. It's uh, I went to Cooper Pedy, which is the underground opal mining town, and then I hitched a ride on the back of a mail truck. And went circling out into the desert. Uh, and it turns out you can go hunting for fossilized seashells in the middle of the Australian desert if you're sufficiently kind to your postie. Um, wow. So How cool is that? Recommended yeah. activities in the, uh, the later times when we're allowed to travel again. Everything at some point was in the bottom of the ocean. You know, it, it all goes back to the sea. <laughs> Atlantis, right? We've got to start somewhere. Uh, I, I have some fan questions. Okay. Uh, are we good on time? Uh, we are. We should probably wrap relatively soon. I can hear the little small monster in the background. So are we good um, for like five or six more minutes? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Teresa MC, how realistic is it to think that um, uh, transporter beam technology may exist? So depends if you want the original item or not. Uh, and this is actually in Star Trek. They talk about this a little bit with the the one doctor who refuses to go through transporters uh, because technically you shred them apart and rebuild an entirely new life form. So you die and are reborn every time you go through a transporter. In that case, we've actually managed to pull it off with quantum transportation uh, where we've done it on individual particle levels so far. Um, and to do it as more than a single particle, well, that's an engineering problem, uh, which really means that's a power supply problem. Um, and we probably need to get back to energy, negative energy density again. So oh boy. could you make it work in terms of theory? Yes. Could you make it work in terms of actual practical application on our lifespan scales? Not really. <laughs> there you go. Jeremy. Only if you start getting technical, like with replicators being actual, like, 3D printers, right? Oh, jeez. I'd love to get into that in another episode with you. Jer Jeremy, did you write any of the techno babble that McKay and others uh, speak? I never wrote anything. I okay. would uh, read things over. I would chat with people. Um, occasionally, conversations would end up transcribed. Um, but with McKay in particular, this is one of my favorite things. So Carl Binder has a, a daughter who is an astrophysicist. Um, and every now and then she'd call, he'd call up his daughter and propose the latest ridiculousness of the week. And she would effectively respond, dad, and then explain why it's wrong. So if you're ever looking at between like Shepard and McKay and wondering about that dynamic, it has an awful lot of uh, exasperated daughter in it. That's why. <laughs> Jeez. I love that. It makes me so happy. First of all, because there's just so many women in science who are involved in Stargate, both on screen and behind the scenes, but also because it's, it makes sense that found family has that relationship that is in, at least in part coming from a real life family. And it makes sense, you know, that the, the same kind of curious people would be involved on both sides. Elizabeth Lee, uh, how much of the math, on the walls of the destiny was valid. All of it. Um, 
So it's all internally consistent. It's all real math. You can go through it and do whatever you want with it. I've actually had teachers ask me for screenshots of it um, and, and have assigned it to their students. So it's all valid math. It's all internally consistent math. And it all has something to do with either plots or occasionally with characters. So sometimes you'll see handwriting changes as it goes between different characters who are working on their pet projects. Um, wow. We did actually, we had a small little incident with, my hallway um, where we, we were filming out of order at the time. Um, and so I set it all up, they filmed, um, and then there was a miscommunication. And instead of putting a sealant on it so it could be taken down and put up and taken down and put up, it was erased and washed clean. And we'd already filmed enough things that we needed it back for continuity which is where me being a scientist is very, very handy because I am obsessive and I had it Recreate all it. Like perfectly documented. <laughs> I was able to go back through and do exact recreations down to like the same smudging all the way back. Um, so that was, it took twice as long to redo it than it did in the first place. Cause I, instead of creating it, I had to recreate in the exact same handwriting sizes and everything. Wow, jeez. Yeah, it's uh, that's one of my many reference things. I've also got reference pages of all the various actors' handwriting so I can do their handwriting. So if you've got like an actor up there completing an equation, I'd write the first half, they'd write the second so, half. Yeah, and exactly. They all look the same. So like I have to learn Chloe's handwriting and Rush's handwriting and Elon's handwriting and be able to match it. Uh, Raj, do other dimensions like hyperspace and subspace exist? Well, we don't know. Okay. Um, so string theory does get into the concept of multiple dimensions. Um, the trouble is we've never been to them, so it's awfully hard to test. Right. And that again, gets to an engineering question. Um, and this is a little bit about why, uh, string theory is kind of misnamed. So a theory is something that you can test, um, and you can go, is this true? Is this false? And then like theory with a big T is like a theory that has been tested repeatedly and is still true. Um, with string theory, it's less about something that you can test because it's it's designed, it's formulated to exactly match what you're already observing with non-string theory interpretations. It's actually more like a lens. So it's like having different filters on your camera. It's a different way of looking at things. Okay. And that if you, instead of looking at things as individual particles, you look at them as vibrating strings, that you can get the same outcome in the end. Um, so you can come up with ways of having what if there are additional dimensions um but everything would look exactly the same to us so we can't tell the what if got it wow last question for you if uh you could go anywhere through the stargate gate gabber wants to know uh where would you like to go and what would you do there uh so because we're like a year into the pandemic um, I would want to visit family I'm in Canada I am a dual citizen so I can technically cross back and forth but I cannot morally cross back and forth. And I've got family down south that I haven't seen that I, I very much wish to. Uh, but if we weren't in pandemic times, who, who, wow, that would be a tough one. So inside our solar system, I would love to go to Titan. Oh, uh, yes. With atmosphere and with like methane lakes and dunes and things like that. And that would just be fascinating. I wouldn't be surprised um, at all if we found life on Titan. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would just be so, so, so cool. Um, and it's got haze and weather patterns and all of that. If we're talking outside the solar system, 
Uh, the Trappist system would be amazing. It's a whole bunch of planets so close together that they're like as close as the moon is to the earth. Wow. So if you had life on any one planet, it would like sneeze and infect life onto the other planets. Okay. Um, so that would be fascinating. Um, and if I had a spaceship that I could go in, I would really love to go to the center of our Milky Way where there's a nebula that we're pretty sure has traces of raspberry rum. Like from our geochemical analysis from a distance, we're pretty sure it's got the same basic formula makeup as raspberry rum. And I'm like, you know, I taste a lot of rocks. Yeah. I'd be down with tasting a nebula. Absolutely. I would totally be down with seeing if I could get, like, you know, <laughs> do tasting notes on the raspberry rum at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So you, you're a gamer. Have you heard of Elite Dangerous? No. Check out Elite Dangerous. It is a one-to-one -one scale Milky Way galaxy. They, uh, it's a British game. They've designed it uh, so that like, like four or five thousand of the systems that exist have been cataloged in the game. It's set twelve thousand years ahead of us, but everything is consistent. You, uh, the flight is uh, uh, very similar. You can go and check out Voyager. It's most of the way towards the planet that it's heading towards right now. And uh, one of the things that I'm planning on doing is uh, making a pilgrimage to Sagittarius A, which is the, the black hole at the center of the galaxy. So Fantastic. Elite Dangerous, check it out. It's built using Will software that has real science principles in it for when it designs the 400 billion star systems that are in our galaxy. So... If I was if I was involved in this game, which I'm not, but if I was, yeah. what I would then do is do the okay, let's do the extra added layer of rating the um, NASA Advanced Innovative Concept Grant projects. So these are the NASA funds sci-fi projects where they go, what are what are technologies that are 10, 20, 30 years down the line that we can support now to create later? And it includes things like what if we could do a CubeSat that could go interplanetary or um, inter intergalactic? So what if we could set these little tiny satellites up and just shoot them off into space in between various solar systems and still be able to communicate with them? And what if we could have like giant laser guns that we fire at them to keep them going faster and accelerate them wow. to the speed of light? And this is actual technology that we are funding in order to be able to build it 10, 20, 30 years down the line. So just looking at that list of grants and going, okay, what if all of them worked? What else could you find? like continuing out into the solar system of could you get like a little ring right circling around of all these little cube stats just firing out and like laser beams coming from earth being like speed up look faster speed up. speed up my solar sail push 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 so the future yeah. is so cool it'd be fun it'd be so fun mika everyone is begging to have you back everyone in the <laughs> chat's like please let's have mika back i would love to have you back later this year i would absolutely have fun with it thank you so, thank so you much for, for coming this was chatting. fascinating always, always great chatting with you so i'll email you in a little bit i'm gonna wrap up the show you take care of yourself okay excellent have Be a great well. day bye-bye now <laughs> mika mckinnon everyone science consultant for stargate i have been wanting to, i apologize they are they are using a uh nail gun <laughs> right now outside my window i apologize for that they are going to town i've been wanting to have mika on for um quite a long time now and uh it's uh, she was a delight uh, uh, as she is always so we'll have to absolutely have her back willie garson is going to be coming up in about 50 minutes at uh 3 p.m pacific time and before uh, we wrap things up, I wanted to let you know about our giveaway for this month. 
Own a piece of the Pegasus Dial Home device. For the month of February, Dial the Gate is partnering with Empire Movie Props to take away to give away, rather, this piece of the DHD from the Atlantis episode Phantoms. To enter to win, you need to use a desktop or laptop computer and visit dialthegate.com. Scroll down to submit trivia questions. Your trivia may be used in a future episode of Dial the Gate, either for our monthly trivia night or for a special guest to ask me in a round of trivia. There are three slots for trivia, one easy, one medium, one hard. Only one needs to be filled in, but you're more than welcome to submit up to three. Please note the submission form does not currently work for mobile devices. Your trivia will be, needs to be received before March the 1st of uh, 2021, obviously. If you're the lucky winner, I'll be notifying you via your email right after the start of the new year to get your address. Big thanks to Empire Movie Props for making this item available to a member of our audience. And Dial the Gate is brought to you every week for free, and we do appreciate you watching. But if you want to support the show further, buy yourself some of our themed swag. We're now offering t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, and hoodies for all ages in a variety of sizes and colors at Redbubble. We currently offer four themed designs and hope to add more in the future. The word cloud designs have both a solid background or transparent background option, so you have some flexibility between choosing a light or a dark color. And do keep in mind uh, th this in mind when you're making your selection. Checkout is fast and easy, and you can even use your Amazon or PayPal account. Just visit dialthegate.redbubble.com, and thank you for your support. And if you enjoyed this episode... And I would really appreciate it if you would click the like button. It makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing the video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click that subscribe icon. So Willie Garson, Martin Lloyd himself, is going to be joining us on Dial the Gate in about 50 minutes from now. Hope you can join us for that episode. I believe this is his first Stargate interview. Um, this is definitely the first time I've ever spoken to him and I've been watching, uh, rewatching Point of No Return and Wormhole Extreme and, and 200. So uh, join us uh, for uh, your questions for uh, Willie Garson. Thanks again to Mika McKinnon. Thanks so much to my moderating team, Summer, Tracy, Keith, Jeremy, Reese. Thanks to Linda Gategabra-Fury and Jennifer Kirby for helping to make this show possible. I'm David Reed. Thanks for tuning in to Dial the Gate. We'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner. Co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, 
Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo designed by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com.